Right. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 is where we'll be this morning. Our scripture reading is actually going to cover two areas, uh, Hebrews 11 and uh, Genesis 22. And so uh, if you're new with us, this is what we do here at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and we are making our way through uh, the book of Hebrews. We have been, I think this is our fourth week in Hebrews 11, and guess what? We won't finish today. Um, And so stand with me in the honor of reading God's word. We're going to be in Hebrews 11, 17 through 22. And like I said, we'll flip over to Genesis. It'll all be on the screen behind me. Hebrews eleven seventeen says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of op- offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was ab- able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau, and by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones, all right? And now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to flip over to Genesis chapter 22, first book in your Bible, Genesis 22, and that story at the very beginning about Abraham and Isaac, I want to read that to us. I want that to be part of our our scripture reading this morning. So Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, this is the Lord, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, My father. And he said, Here I I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in in, in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said to him, here I am. You sensing a theme there? He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I read all of that to set the context. The story of Abraham and Isaac needs context, right? 
It wouldn't have been fair just to jump into uh, Hebrews chapter 11, 17 through 22, just assuming that you know the story or that I fully know the story of Abraham and Isaac, even though it's a uh, very famous story. But here we are in uh, Hebrews 11 once again, and Hebrews 11 is all about, oh, no, it's all about Jesus. Come on, like how, yeah, I knew you were going to say faith. No, Hebrews 11 is all about Jesus, right? All of the scriptures point to Jesus, and, and yes, I know, you said faith. You're right, right? You're right. But it's about faith in Christ. And it, Hebrews 11 uses all of these pictures and these examples from the Old Testament of like, of towering faith. And I've got to tell you that this is like one of the prolific stories in our Bible of faith. Like one, one of the most well-known, one of the most prolific. And, and, and um, there, there's a very famous uh, atheist by the name of Richard Dawkins. He's a, he's a professor, right? A very outspoken uh, atheist. Um, and he writes a lot about this story in our Old Testament, about Abraham and Isaac and how much he actually hates the story of Abraham and Isaac. And I I could go into a lot of different things that he says, but I I want to read a section that he says about this story and how he feels, as an atheist, mind you, about this story. He says, this disgraceful story, and this is after a lot of things, this disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships, and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense, I was only obeying Orders, right? Nuremberg defense, Nazi Germany. And some of you, some of you, and you you wouldn't articulate it like that. You wouldn't say it that strongly. But even as you hear me read Genesis 22, you're going, that seems harsh. That seems hard for me to reckon. And let me tell you two problems with Richard Dawkins' statement there. One Obviously, it's through the lens and ears and eyes of an atheist. Someone who rejects the existence of God. Obviously, that's, that's a reason. But the two primary reasons that his statement is an issue is because, one, there is a very clear misunderstanding of who God is. And I would challenge those of us who maybe approach Genesis 22 with that kind of maybe speculation or like, what in the world is this about? Like, one kind of distance ourselves. There's a misunderstanding of the character of God that is displayed in Genesis 22. And the second thing that I want us to attack from Hebrews 11 this morning is that there is a misunderstanding of the Christian faith. Of the Christian faith. Right? Not faith in general, but of Christian faith. Faith rooted in Christ. And so Hebrews 11, as much as I, Abraham and Isaac is one of my favorite stories in the Bible because I think it's deeply misunderstood. But Hebrews 11 has a very specific task at utilizing that story. And so I want to stay true to Hebrews 11, right, in Genesis uh, 22. Um, and so I'll point out three things about faith that we see here in Abraham. And the first is this found in verse 17. To understand what the Lord is doing we have to understand something that is mentioned in Genesis 22 and in Hebrews 11, verse 17. And it says this, and so if you have your Bible open, keep it open, we're just going to go through this text. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, if you go to Genesis 22, you don't have to turn there, I will. He says, after these things, God tested Abraham. Repeated word there, test, test. 
not tempted, not just kind of, you know, lured him out there. He was, God was testing Abraham. He was testing Abraham's faith. And something we need to understand about Christian faith is this, that God tests our faith. To understand this passage with Abraham and Isaac, right? A father being asked to lay his son down on an altar, we have to understand that it was a test by God. Now, the question here is ultimately, what was God asking of Abraham? And many of you would go on the surface reading, well, he was asking Abraham to make a sacrifice of his son, He was asking Abraham to lay down his most beloved and prized son, right? That's not what God was ultimately asking. The question God is ultimately asking every time he tests someone is this. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? That's the question being asked in Genesis 22. Do you trust me? Now, um, my wife and I were talking through um, Gen- uh, Hebrews 11 and, uh, and, and about some of these other people who we've walked through, right? Uh, Noah and all these other men of faith uh, and, and women that we'll see in the upcoming uh, weeks. And she's like, man, it just seems like, like there are these like pinnacles, right? And it's right. Like they're, they're examples for a reason. But Abraham, you need to know this. And I hope this gives you confidence. Abraham didn't pass every test. Abraham didn't pass every test where God was asking him the same question, do you trust me? I mean, you go back from Genesis 22 to Genesis 12, right? And Abraham there was lying about his wife, not just once, but twice. You want to know why he lied about his wife? To protect himself. Or or how about where he and Sarah, his wife, took matters into their own hands, right? They, they, They were promised a son, right? And it wasn't happening, right? You know at what age that happened, 90 and 99. But they were getting angsty probably in their mid-70s, right? Going, what's going on? What's happening? Why, why is this happening? Then, then what did they do? They took matters into their own hands. And listen to me, that is always where things go off the rails for us as believers. And non-believers too, but believers. Where we go, God, you've made these promises. You've said this word to us. But it seems like you're really slow. So maybe you need some help, Lord. And I'm glad to step in and help. Right? It's, it's that old garden lie. Right? Not, not are we wondering, did God really say? But the question or the lie is this. God, you did say. And it seems like you're failing. God, it seems like you're not coming through on your word. So the question we need to ask this morning is this. Why does God test our faith? Right? If the question, the big looming question over our lives is this, do you trust me? Why does God see fit to test us? Why did he test Abraham? Why is he maybe testing you and me even today or this day or this week or this year or the past five years or the past 10 years? What is the purpose of testing our faith? It's this purpose to see if our faith is genuine or not, to see if it's real or fake. And I don't mean some version, flimsy version, but I I mean the object to truly see the reason the Lord tests our faith is to see where our faith really lies. What is really the object of your faith? Is it you? 
Is it, is it another person? Is, is it a thing? Or is it really full on Christ? And now, the testing of our faith is not for God to see. Okay? It's not for God to see. Like, God doesn't wonder. <laughs> right? Like, I wonder if his faith is real. I wonder if she's really figuring it out. Like, he knows all things. And so he tests us for the genuineness of our faith to show who? You in me to expose us to uh, the true idols, the true objects of our faith. God doesn't wonder. I wonder. You wonder. You ever been there before? Like, I, I wonder if I actually believe in Jesus. You ever been in, in that position? Like, I wonder if I actually have put my faith and trust in him. I, I wonder if at the end of my days, I'll stand before the Lord and he'll actually look back at me and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so the testing of our faith provides for us assurance. It provides for us confidence. But there's an additional reason God tests our faith. It's not just to prove something to us to be true or false. It is also, hear me, the testing of our faith is also meant to deeply produce something, not just prove something, but produce something in our lives. One of the most practical books in our entire Bible is the book of James in the New Testament. The book of James, it doesn't make it two verses without pinning these words. Listen to this. It'll be on the screen behind me. It says in, in James chapter 1, verse 2, count it, all joys, my, my, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, okay? Trials, those things, those waves that crash against your life. Genesis 22, Abraham, take your son, right? That's a massive one, right? It says, for you know that the testing of your faith, here it is, produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfected and complete, lacking in nothing. So get this. Our good and gracious, perfect and holy God tests our faith, not just to prove its substance, but to produce in us something that only comes by way of testing. Endurance, a common theme in the book of Hebrews. Steadfastness, where is that produced? testing, trials, temptation, those waves that crash against our lives. And so the Lord allows it. The Lord, the Lord would allow us to walk through those things so that it produces something that is so deep in us that we would be able to echo what James chapter 1 verse 2 says, that we count it as joy. Only people who have walked through tests and trials, faithfully experiencing and knowing that God is good, can say, I count all of this as joy. I mean, I look at Genesis 22, right? And I pray that you even heard it while I was reading it. Can you imagine that scene? Can, can you imagine the scene with Abraham? Like, I mean, just, just, just even from the, the beginning of the reading, the Lord speaks to him. And what's the, what's the first thing out of his mouth? Here I am. Remember a few weeks ago where I talked about Abraham and his obedience and how it was this immediate obedience? You know where that immediate obedience was produced in? It was produced in the faithfulness of God time and time again through testing and trial. 
Every time. That's where this was produced. That's why in Genesis 22, when you're getting to the latter stages of Abraham's life, the Lord speaks and he's like, what? I'm here. Not in a flippant way. He's going, no, Lord, I'm here. I'll do whatever it takes. And something that I realized just this week in examining Genesis 22, there is no emotion in that passage. Now, you can take that two ways, and I'm willing to go both of those ways. Where I I view that as as a father, right? Being placed in a position like Abraham. Can you imagine being asked of that? And where I think of like, hot sweats and like heart racing and and wrestling. You don't see any of that in Genesis 22, right? A lot of the commentaries that I even read on Genesis 22, they, they put that on the text. And that honestly, guys, is speculation at best. There could have been the other emotion, right? In Abraham, where his, he was absolutely resolved, Because God has been faithful in the testing of his faith time and time again to get him to this place where he goes, God, whatever you have asked of me, because you have a proven track record that I trust, I'll do whatever it is. Imagine that kind of resolve in the face of this. And this, even for our minds, especially here in the West, is hard to reckon. I even wrestled with that. I'm like, really? I think my heart would be beating. I think Abraham's heart would have been beating really fast, maybe. Or maybe he trusted the Lord so much And here's where I want to go with the next point. That what superseded his physical emotion in this, hearing that he was going to sacrifice his son, lay his son on the altar, was something much deeper and much more profound. Now let's look at it here. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, he, that's Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. So what Hebrews 11 right there is just giving us a snapshot into is Abraham's heart. Even in this most incredible request from the Lord, in in the face of this most incredible test from the Lord to Abraham, Abraham's mind and heart was connected to what? The power of God. Now, here's what's interesting about this, and this is what I've called faith's logic. And the reason I've called it faith's logic is because in verse 19, the word considered... That's what word is used in the ESV. The word considered here is the word uh, in, in the Greek, logosomenos, right? It's this word that means, we, we get the word logarithm, right? Any mathematicians in here? Logarithm. It simply means to calculate or to compute. So this, Genesis 22, Abraham's obedience, Abraham's testing, Abraham's decision to walk with his son Isaac up Mount Moriah was not one of simply blind faith. This was one of an absolute calculated decision, a logical, a rational decision that Abraham made, okay? But this is faith's logic. And this is why guys like, like Dawkins, and, and this doesn't compute. Why? Because they haven't been given the eyes and ears and heart of faith. But for Abraham, he absolutely had that heart. And so here's what he was saying. Listen, my, my faith logic is going to be greater than my human logic. And what's going to lead is faith. And so for, for Abraham, he went back into his storehouse, if you will, of logic, of God's faithfulness, and reasoned this situation out, where Hebrews 11 said this, he was so confident in taking his son up there that he knew the Lord would bring, bring Isaac back to life. Okay, so I, I, I like math, 
Okay, I'm gonna be honest, I'm just gonna, I like math, I like equations, anybody else, linear thinkers, right, whatever, left side, right side, that's my whole brain, whatever that is, okay? But try this equation on for size, okay? Try this logarithm, try this as faith's logic in Abraham's mind, right? These are the things we see in Genesis 22, right? God's past faithfulness plus God's promises plus God's inability to lie equals God won't fail. Here's what Abraham stood on, that God has been faithful. He has been faithful in the past. God has promised that the nation will come from my son, Isaac, that it will flow from him. So get this, if Isaac is, is killed before he has an heir, right? He wasn't married at this time. He was a boy probably anywhere from 13 to 17. There's a problem there. God's promise that was given to Abraham won't be fulfilled. God's inability to lie. God cannot lie. God only speaks the truth. By the way, caveat this. Satan, he cannot tell the truth. Satan can only lie. He's the father of lies, the word of God tells us, right? And so God is the epitome of truth. He only speaks the truth. And so Abraham's resolve and confidence was this. God can't fail. So I'm going to obey. This is faith's logic. Abraham's conclusion, God will bring Isaac back to life. And this is even seen in Genesis 22. You might have missed it. Genesis 22, give me that, Keith, uh, real quick. Genesis 22, verse 5. Look at how Abraham talks to the two men that went with him. Look at this. And then Abraham said to his young men, the men that went with him carrying the wood, stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and In the original, the Hebrew, it says, and we will come again to you. This is before he goes up there. He is confident. We will come back to you. We're going to go worship. We're going to go do what the Lord has asked us to do. But here is the reality of our God. We're going to come back to you. How do I know we're going to come back to you? Because God has made a promise that his nation will be birthed through me, through my son. And this is my son, Isaac. God won't fail. God's not going to lie. God will bring forth exactly what he says. And here's how he's going to do it. There's going to be another resurrection. But this has been the testimony of Abraham's life. There has been one resurrection after another. Abram coming out, resurrecting from the land of Ur. A barren womb, right? With Sarah. She's 90. He's 99. There is no way. Hebrews 11 says they were like as good as dead until the Lord intervened. And what happened? Brought Isaac. And maybe on the walk, Abraham's life flashed before his eyes and he came to the conclusion, God can do anything. I've seen him do it before and so I trust him. Maybe this is a gentle reminder that Genesis 18 given to Abraham. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too difficult? Let's not forget Isaac's conception, how miraculous that was. God can resurrect anything. And so listen, we as believers, we have this unshakable confidence that God will always be faithful to his word. God will always be faithful to his promises, always. And so listen to me, there is another step in faith's logic. Not just to follow that that algorithm, but the next step in faith's logic is this, that no matter how difficult or crazy it may look, God is faithful and will be faithful. His word never fails, but it must be, here's our part, It must be believed and it must be obeyed. It must be believed and it must be obeyed. 
Joshua 21, 45 says this, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. All of them. Not one word, not one promise failed. They all came to pass. And so here is what I know. When the word of God gives a promise, it's true. When the word of God says that you are a new creation, the old is gone, behold, the new has come, it's true. When the word of God says things like this, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, guess what? Guess how much condemnation there is? None for those who are in Christ. Guess, guess what? When Jesus says, listen, those who I set free are free indeed, guess what you are? You are free, right? The chains of addiction, the chains of, of bondage and, and suffering, all of those things are broken in Christ Jesus. The logic of faith says this, I'm going to obey God and leave the outcomes to him. I love Al Moeller, Albert Moeller. He's a seminary president, great preacher as well. He said, Abraham's faith rested upon three things. The greatness of God, his faith in God's creative power, and the unshakable certainty of God's word. Do you believe those things about God? That he is absolutely great? His power is a creative power, and do you have an unshakable certainty in God's word? Abraham, as demonstrated in this, did. And for us this morning, I want to submit to you that there are really um, only two ways we can go as believers, and I'm talking to you as a Christian. You can either uh, rationalize your way, and I mean that in the, the earthly sense, away our obedience. We can go, well, you know, we can kind of put our formula on it. Well, I don't know if this makes sense for this reason or that reason. Or we can go, God, you've said it. God, you, you, you have called this out in me. You have asked this of me to go here, to not do this, to, to participate in this. And we can go, God, I trust you more than I trust my emotions and my instincts and my earthly rationale. That's faith's logic. Listen, on the surface, so many decisions we have made, individually and corporately, even as a church, on the surface are like, what? Why, why, why would you do that? Why, why would you start a clinic? Why would you invest in this? Why would you, why would you go after the, the, the marginalized? Because Jesus told us to. Because that is the logic of faith. Jesus said, do this, we will. Without the experience, with, for many of us, without the, the, the understanding, but God has been faithful every step of the way. And the last thing, and here's where I want to land, um, is faith's legacy. And I, I wish I had time to go through all of the names listed here from Isaac and Jacob and Esau and Joseph. But this is a cascading effect of Abraham's faithfulness from Genesis 22 there that the generations to come were a legacy of faith. These men, when they got to the end of their lives, they knew that death was not the final word. This is exactly what I said last week with the resurrection, that death did not have the final word, that physical death cannot frustrate the plan and purposes of God. Now hear me, I want you to look at me with this point. Most of the promises you will read in the pages of the scriptures made by God are not for this life. They're not for this life. And if they're for this life, 
they will not be fully realized until later, right? Until after this life. Now, here we, there are promises for this life, right? I think about James even to go back to that book, right? He says, if any of you lack wisdom, God will give wisdom to you. Praise God that God gives us wisdom, right? He gives us joy. But most of the promises written in the pages of the scripture are fulfilled when? On the other side of eternity. When we stand with unveiled faces before God, we realize all of the things he's called us into, all of the things that we participated in this life were for his glory. And that is faith's legacy. But hear me, faith's greatest legacy in Hebrews chapter 11 is not Abraham. It's not Jacob. It's not Joseph. It's not Isaac. What these lives are meant to point to, and I hope even as I read Genesis 22, it almost reads like an allegory of Christ. Abraham, the father, giving his only son, literally down to the things like placing him on wood. This points to the greatest legacy, and that is Christ. That this is a neon sign pointing to the death of the father's only begotten son, Jesus, whom he loved. And hopefully, church, hopefully non-believer, Hopefully, Richard Dawkins at some point when the Holy Spirit calls him to Christ. Hopefully, that you will see a story of a father's love for a son and a son's trust in his father. Let's not forget Isaac. Isaac was, yes, a young man, but Abraham was really, really old. It would have been easy for Isaac to go, I'm overpowering you, old man. But what did he do? He willingly obeyed his father. He submitted. But here this points to the ultimate submission by Christ to his father. And what flows from Jesus is a promised blessing passed down by faith, generation after generation after generation, where that legacy of Jesus' faithfulness would be passed down to you and to me in this room today. And so that is the legacy of faith. That is this legacy that we stand in and say, Lord, as Abraham did time and time again, here I am, whatever you ask. Let me pray for us. Father, um, God, I, I first and foremost want to come before you um, just admitting my slowness in hearing your voice. How so often I am so busy with the noise of this world and in life that I fail to, to quiet my, my heart and my life enough to actually hear your voice speaking through your word. And God, I pray that we would better position ourselves individually and corporately as a church before you and before your word and before your presence, before this community of faith so that we might respond to you, that we might respond to your call, that we might respond to where you're leading and where uh, you're asking us to go or where you're asking us to flee. Lord, I pray for those in this room who are uniquely going through 
deep seasons of testing right now. Lord, I pray that they might see your grace in it. I pray that they might see that it is proving, it is bringing an assurance to them that you're their God and they're your child. But God, it is also producing in them a deep work. And so Lord, I pray for those people, God, that are in a season where their roots are going deep and deep. Lord, I pray for others in here who are not going through a season of testing, but it's a season where we're filling the storehouse of our lives and our minds with your faithfulness, with your promises, with your goodness, so that when we do walk through testing, Lord, that's what we'll draw from. That's what we'll pull from. Holy Spirit, I pray that even in this space and in this place this morning, that you would begin to speak, that you would lead our hearts, that you would lead this community of faith in those places and spaces that you've done before that make us so nervous, that are so foreign, that are so outside of our box of comfort and our realm. And God, we would apply that logic of faith that trusts you above everything, that sees you as good, Father, I thank you for a church that is willing with the eyes of faith to truly see your character and your heart toward us. Your heart of love and gentleness and care. A heart of mercy that has been given to us through Christ. God, I pray that as we go this week, as we go from this gathering, you'd quicken our hearts to obey you. It's not just enough to know these things intellectually. Now give us the faith to actually obey them for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.